0: So our scripture reading comes from Genesis 42, 18 to 28. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon away from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys and their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack He said to his brothers, my money has been put back, here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Before we begin, let me ask God, let's ask our Heavenly Father to bless our time and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, um, I'm so thankful and so privileged to be up here to share in this series, to preach a a sermon on Joseph's life. Lord, I ask that as I myself have had a difficult week, as I've prepared this sermon in its preparation, Lord, I have received much comfort in your providential hand and in your sovereignty and your mercy. So I do pray, God, that you would um, bless our time and that you would um, just be with me. Um, even through all of these different, um, different fallibilities that we have. I ask this in your son's name. For the last five sermons, we have been following the life of Joseph. With each chapter, we have watched as Joseph's situation has seemingly gone from bad to worse. Despised and sold by his brothers into slavery in chapter 37, wrongly accused and sentenced to prison in chapter 39, forgotten and left to himself, in chapter 40. But in chapter 41, Joseph finally catches his break. He gets his opportunity to speak with Pharaoh and God does more for Joseph than anything that we expected, especially if it's your first time reading through the story. In last week's sermons, Pharaoh appointed Joseph the governor over the land for rightly interpreting his dreams. Those dreams involved seven years of prosperity in the land, followed by seven years of famine. The themes that we have developed in the course of Joseph's life is God's providence, God's presence, and God's purpose, not only in what he is doing in Joseph's life, but a reminder to all of us what God is doing in our lives. Joseph's story not only rings on a personal level to us, It is not only the history of the redemption of Israel and their salvation, it is our history for those who belong to Christ. Now as Rob has described the story of Joseph, he has used the analogy of it being like a crazy new Netflix series, A Must See. And I suppose if we are going to continue with that analogy, Rob, I think it's safe to say in chapter 41, we reach the end of season one. Joseph in chapter 41 has children. He is given status. He is given power. And his life has completely turned around. But every good series needs a nice cliffhanger. So while we think all is well in the life of Joseph, we do have season two of Joseph, the Forgotten Redeemer, which is a cool title. But in chapter 41, verses 56, it leaves us with this cliffhanger, that the land is consumed by the famine... And the seven years have begun. But questions are left unanswered to us. What happens to Joseph's dreams? What happens to Joseph's family? What happens to the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from earlier in Genesis? Before we drop into the story in Genesis 42, let me give you a little bit of a road map of what to expect and what we are to be looking out for. Be reminded that God's providential hand is always at work here. Everything has actually been leading up to the events that are going to unfold in the next eight chapters. Joseph is now the most powerful man in Egypt, next to Pharaoh, and God has placed Joseph into this position. So as we read on, we must see that the actions of Joseph, while not infallible, are actually a depiction of God's power and authority. God has anointed Joseph to this place. And the key element from this chapter, I believe, is the mercy that God uses through Joseph. We will be observing three different ways God in this story demonstrates his mercy to us. Point number one is God's mercy in our lies, point number two is God's mercy in our guilt, and point number three is God's mercy in our ignorance. Let's start by looking at verses 1 through 6. The famine has hit the land, and the story now begins with Jacob and his sons. And they are beginning to feel the effects of this lack of food. Somehow, some way, Jacob hears that news in Egypt that they have food. And in so doing, he tells and he mocks his boys who are just Staring at one another. He says, why are you just staring at one another? Go down to Egypt and go get us some grain so we do not die. Perhaps you can sense the frustration that Jacob has with his sons. Maybe there's just a consistent habit of this brother's inactivity, their laziness. We saw some of that behavior back in chapter 37 when Joseph originally went to go to his brothers to see if they were tending the flock, but he found them not in Shechem, he found them in Dothan. But all these years later, Jacob is no better himself. He sends his sons away, but keeps Benjamin, the youngest, the brother of Joseph, close to himself. Jacob is still playing favorites. Jacob is attempting to control the circumstances this time around. He will not leave his youngest son in the custody and the watch of these ten other, uh, these nine other, ten other sons. Sorry, because look what happened the last time they were with Joseph. Oh, that didn't end too well. He does not take that risk. He sends his boy off. And the sad thing about this story is that after all this time, this family is still broken and divided. And yet in the midst of all their sins, God is orchestrating it all to accomplish his ends. But more on that in a little later. So point number one, God's mercy in our lives. Looking now at verse 6, we pick up our story. Joseph's brothers come and stand before Joseph in Egypt And they bow down before him. In verse 7, we learn Joseph immediately recognizes all of his brothers. Pause there for a minute, because 20 years have elapsed. Joseph is in power. He is standing before his brothers. And the only thing that I could imagine thinking in my mind is, well, 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 what do we have here? After 20 long, grueling, pain-filled years, the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery, the ones who lied to their dad about his death, the brothers who ignored his cries for help and spoke unkindly to him all those years ago are now prostrating themselves before him. What is going through the mind of Joseph? What would be going through your mind if you were given this moment? Has God delivered the brothers over to Joseph for divine punishment? Is God giving Joseph a moment to enact his own vengeance? Is this a temptation, a test from God to Joseph to see if he has truly humbled himself? Joseph has to think fast on his feet. His first move is to pretend not to recognize them. Gather more information. Play the Egyptian governor to his brothers. Verse 7 says, where are you from? Their response, direct, no suspicion at all. We are from the land of Canaan. Come to buy food. Verse 8 emphasizes this point again. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they do not recognize him. Joseph has fooled his brothers. He knows who they are, but they have not a clue who this man before them, how it could possibly be their long-lost brother. Joseph has a moment, and in verse 9, remembers his dreams, the dreams from all those years ago. If you look back at Genesis 37, 6-8, let me give you a little refresher. Genesis 37, 6-8 says, He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it, and bow down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now I imagine Joseph clearly has the spiritual gift of interpreting dreams. I mean, he's gone four for four in his history the cupbearer, the bread maker, and the two from Pharaoh. Joseph must have some inkling of what is unfolding before him. Things are beginning to connect. Whatever the case may be, Joseph thinks that the right thing to do in this situation is to continue to play the role. This is not the time yet to come clean to his brothers. So he tells them, you are spying out the land. Joseph applies pressure to the situation and to the brothers. Maybe this is to get more information, to see their reaction, or maybe all of this is to put them to some kind of test. The brothers respond and they're shocked by these false accusations. A false accusation, by the way, much like the one that Potiphar's wife gave to Joseph. The brother's response is panic. The irony sets in when they say in verse 11, We are honest men, we have never been spies. Notice the way they preface, they're not spies. Honest men. How Joseph kept his cool in this moment is beyond me, but that is a bold claim. Honest men? What did you tell dad when you gave him my robe? What did you tell dad when your pockets were bulging with the money you made off of me? Where did you tell dad all of this took place? Because I know you were supposed to be in Shechem, but we were in Dothan. The irony is Joseph knows them to be the farthest thing from honest men. These are 10 brothers who have kept up a conspiracy, a lie, a facade to their father for 20 long years. The audacity and the incongruity that these brothers are demonstrating is palatable. Because Joseph knows otherwise. The brothers know otherwise. And most importantly, God knows otherwise. Yet they think this Egyptian governor can't possibly know their backstory, their history, and their sin. But for some reason, this governor keeps pressing in on the spy thing. He says, no, you have come out to spy on the land. It's almost like he knows something. It's almost like he can just see right through us. Oh, how we often try to minimize our own sins in the presence of real authority. Back when I was a kid, probably in the seventh or eighth grade, I got detention for acting out in class. I was accused of pouring an entire water bottle over another kid in science class, which to this day I say is exaggerated, I sprinkled him. But I went home with my pink slip, I showed my mom who at the time was a fierce, fierce tiger mom. And I'm not supposed to ever bring that kind of shame to the family, bringing home this pink slip. So I fibbed. I told my mom, Mommy, I have no idea why I got this attention, but let me just serve its time. Don't worry about it. Now my mom, knowing her son all too well, looks me right in the eye, and she says, Oh, really, Daniel? I am going to give you one chance, because you know how much I hate liars. Did you pour that water all over that kid in science class? And understanding the gravity of this moment, I looked my mom right in the eyes, and I said, Mommy, I'm telling you the truth. I figured, how is she ever going to find out? Next day, guess who shows up to six period science class? my mother goes into the classroom and pulls out three to four students in the classroom to check on my story it was one of the most embarrassing moments i had in all of my academia my mom saw right through me and she made me pay for it so i'd like to thank you mommy she's in the back over there thank you for having that mercy on me because it kept me out of a lot of trouble not further detentions, I still got a lot of those, but I always told the truth after that point. My point is this, though. We all try to downplay our wrongs before others, to ourselves, so we don't have to feel guilty before anyone, especially some God. We are always seeking to minimize our transgressions, to put ourselves in a better light than we are. I have people telling me all the time how good they were growing up. Dan, I never stole a thing in my life. I never cheated on a test. I was always a good guy, and I still am. And I go, really? Have you ever even a little bit fudged on your taxes? Well, you know, that's different. I ask them, why? Or let's be a little bit more real than that. Some of us might say, I have never committed adultery. I have never cheated on my spouse. But Matthew 5 says, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now I'm not just talking to men in here. And I'm not just thinking about the use of things like pornography. I am talking about the very way we even speak or engage in the hypersexual culture that we live in. I'm talking about the way we talk about celebrities. That actor, that actress, they're so hot, I just wanna spend one day with that person, Ba 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 ba. Or the way that we idolize and engage in fitness culture, where we like to look at the bodies of athletes. I mean, do you know that there are millions and millions of followers on certain gym-going women and men? Do you really think those people on Instagram are clicking and looking and appreciating the rigor and the commitment that they have to their physical health? I highly doubt it. You may say, well, I've never harmed or hurt anyone. Matthew 5 again, have you heard that it is said those of old you shall not murder for whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to that judgment. See, we often think that we get to set the moral bar where we want. We get to assign that measure. And what we fail to realize is that God is the one who makes those judgments and he is the one who gets to set that measure. You might say, well, if we take everything the Bible says literally, then no one is good, no one can say anything, and we're all guilty. That's exactly the point. The truth is, the good news that Jesus Christ has died on the cross does not have the effect, at least this is for myself, does not have the effect I want it to have day to day is because we think implicitly that we're really not all that bad. It would have been one thing for the brothers to simply say that they were not spies. That would have been truth enough. But they preface the comment by saying, we are honest men. They don't enhance their statement by saying it, they cheapen it. If we cheapen or attempt to marginalize sin in our own life, we will be marginalizing and cheapening the mercy of God. Joseph, in this moment, should have gone ballistic on his ten brothers. He had all the power to do so in the first second that he saw them. He was given more warrant, maybe, by their shameless comment that they are honest men. The conceit to stand before Joseph and to say, they are honest men. And yet, Joseph, who has all the power in this situation, who could silence them, tempers the situation with mercy. God, each and every day, gives out that kind of mercy to all of us. And we often fool ourselves thinking that we are somehow better than people that we see in the Bible like these brothers. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together in Christ. God is merciful that even as we continue to minimize our sad estate as we continue to fall short of his glory day to day his compassion never fails. Rejoice over the God that says that his steadfast love never ceases and that his mercies never come to an end. And so, we can wonder, we can ponder the mercy of God more deeply by thoughtfully considering the mercy of Joseph to his ill-deserved brothers. But God's mercy here is not just in patience in downplaying of our sins. Point number two, God's mercy in our guilt. I believe thus far Joseph has not dealt harshly and he has not done cruelly or vindictively with his brothers. I believe that he is challenging them to repentance. At first, according to verse 16, Joseph tells them he plans to keep all of them in custody. One brother can go back and then that brother can go receive Benjamin so they can prove the integrity of their situation. And then he sends his brothers away and they go three days into custody to mull over what is happening to them. On the third day, he brings them before himself again, and Joseph says something so striking here. Look at verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. Oddly, these men of Israel at no point have mentioned or made an appeal to God. Yet this so-called Egyptian, this high-profile, mighty pagan, this guy is appealing to some higher authority above himself. Wanting to appear fair and just, Joseph introduces God into the conversation. We know Joseph to be so well at doing this over the years. I mean, every circumstance he found himself in, whether it be Potiphar's wife, whether it be the cupbearer or Pharaoh himself, Joseph is always looking for a way to get God into the conversation so that God can do his work. Now, whether or not the brothers found it strange, this Egyptian mentions the fear of God, seems irrelevant. Because the terms have changed. Joseph has given them a new mercy. I will keep only one brother here, and the nine of you can go back home with the food to your families to feed them in this famine. But the brothers seem too weighted down by their guilt to recognize or to appreciate that mercy. I mean, they are so consumed now with their guilt and with their misfortune. Most likely when they hear the phrase, the fear of God, it is triggered in their mind, oh yeah, this all makes sense now. This whole situation is just cosmic retribution for the life of our long lost brother, Joseph. Let's again read the conversation they have among themselves. Remember, they are speaking Hebrew. The Egyptians are speaking Egyptian. So they think that this conversation is a side conversation. It's private. Here's what they say. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Notice already they say here, In truth, meaning we're not really honest men. We have sins that condemn us here. In that we saw the distress of his soul, and he begged us, and we didn't listen. This is why distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there is a reckoning for his blood. Now fear is in the brothers. Not the type of fear that God would like us to have, which is of his reverence and to be in awe of him. No, the fear of God that is in them now is that he will punish them and deal harshly with them. The God that these brothers identify identify with is not the God that we've seen that their forefathers have enjoyed. God has been reduced to nothing more than a cosmic judge, a God of karma, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And I wonder how many of us struggle with thinking of God in a similar way When you face or when we face trial or bad situations, do we sometimes think that God has turned himself against us, that the love of God has ceased on you, and that you are now to face the full wrath of his indignation? We fear that we must make up it to God, alleviate our guilt some way, or maybe look for ways to get God back in our good graces. Or worse, has the guilt in our lives been so crushing that we now believe that God cannot and would not help someone as unworthy as us. But I think the response of God may be similar to the response Joseph has in verses 23 and 24. So often we think that our thoughts are private, that no one knows how we feel, no one knows the tremendous shame and guilt that we experience. We believe that our assessments and conclusions about life are private, hidden from anyone and all that we have offended. Yet God knows all, God hears all, and God sees all. This is what happens with Joseph. The narrator tells us, They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them, meaning an interpreter would have been translating the conversation. But This is a side one. And he turned away from them, and he wept. Joseph is so overwhelmed with emotion right now. Think about remaining silent and to watch the process and the thought process of your brothers as they talk about your life and the process of repentance that's going on in their hearts. I'm sure memories are just flooding back to Joseph. Maybe he's even thinking of his own folly, his own sin that made his brothers not warranted, but made them want to get rid of him his pride, his his snobbery, his arrogance. Yet God has humbled Joseph over all these years. We know that God has shown steadfast love and his presence was with them. But his brothers, they have burned with shame all of these years. For the last 20 years, the conspiracy against their brother and the lies that they've had to keep secret have taxed their souls. The weight of their conscience is, quite frankly, eating them alive. So Joseph weeps. He weeps for many different reasons. But a clear indicator here is that his affections are still for the souls of his lost brothers and for them to find peace with their God that he knows himself. So how does this situation reflect the mercy of God? Not only for these brothers, but for us as believers as we read into this story Who may suffer with this kind of guilt. While I do not want to take up the argument here that God weeps as Joseph here weeps, we do know that God's heart can be grieved and that God is a God of compassion. Isaiah 30, 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy, or in some translations, compassion to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And blessed are all those who wait for him. We know that God disciplines those whom he loves, Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, and he chastises, rebukes every son whom he receives. My point here is that God may use situations and people to bring about godly repentance by stirring up your unforgiven guilt. God may make you remember or bring to light the seriousness of your sin that you have maybe chosen to ignore or you have pushed out of your mind. And this may happen in many different ways through conversations, through a sermon, through an article, through a podcast, through a relationship. Really, anything in God's good control may be used to bring you to humility. For God desires to bring you to repentance in order that he may forgive you. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, but it is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We must not look at our life situations from the vantage point that God is merely dealing out cosmic karma for our wrongdoings. But rather, God is using and orchestrating every event to bring his people to repentance. God's mercy is in his chastising. If you yourself are convicted of private sin, if you have covered up previous grievances, brushed wrong under the rug, God offers mercy for your guilt no matter how much time has passed by. We know that God does not despise a contrite heart and a broken spirit. Psalm 51.17 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 And in Psalm 32.5, David says that he will confess his iniquity and his sins to the Lord. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And here's the, the promise. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. All of this because God has ultimately provided for every sin and every guilt in the life of those who have called upon the name of His Son. For any person who wishes to be free of condemnation that is due to them rightfully, the promise of Romans 8.1 is held out to you. Confess your sins to the Lord Christ, our greater governor, and He is just to forgive and remove them and all of your unrighteousness, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So I say that even in a moment of pain, guilt, shame that may be stirred up by others could in fact be the very hand of God bringing conviction to your life in order that He may remove your guilt by offering you Himself as your only hope. This is God's mercy to us in times of great guilt. And this is the mercy God uses in the life of Joseph's brothers. Again, the irony is here's the irony God somehow found a way to use Joseph as the instrument to bring his brothers to repentance for the very sins that they committed against him. Point number three God's mercy in our ignorance. The story goes on. Joseph is continuing to test his brothers, but he loves them and he wants to show kindness to them. In verse 25, he gives orders that his family should receive their fair share of grain. And two kindnesses stand out to me in those verses. First, Joseph not only gives them their grain, but he stocks them up with provisions to make the journey back home. This is not a courtesy, I think, that Joseph is doing to them. This is not like, thanks for buying in bulk. Here's a little bit extra. These guys are apparently spies, according to Joseph. You would not send spies back to their land with additional provisions. This is a kindness that Joseph is showing as they travel back home. Secondly, Joseph puts the money back into their bags, and the whole thing is completely free. Joseph would not allow his brothers to pay for their food. He abundantly provides to them and he blesses them. Again, an undeserved mercy. Upon leaving, one of the brothers, we're not told which one, discovers that there is money in one of the bags. The brothers interpret this to be a bad omen and we can see this by the comment that they make, what is this that God has done to us? Which we will return to shortly. They go back home to their father. They tell their father the tale. And when they open up all the rest of the sacks, guess what they find? All the money that had gone with them. Even Jacob, the father, falls into the perception that this is ill fortune. Of course, Jacob, not knowing the the extent of the sins of his sons, figures he himself is the target of God's rebuke. In verse 36, he says, All of this has come against me. As you can see, Jacob is still a little bit of a navel-gazer here. What we are left with in the story at the end is Reuben attempting to try to take control, to be the leader of the family and says, Father, if I do not bring back Benjamin, I offer my two sons as collateral. Kill them if I do not bring back Benjamin. I don't see why their grandfather would do something like that, so it's not really helpful. But Jacob, stubborn as ever, refuses, deciding it is better to cut his losses and leave his other son Simeon with this Egyptian governor than to risk losing little Benjamin. His ending remarks in verse 38 are a reminder to all the brothers that Joseph and Benjamin hold a greater place in Jacob's heart than all the other sons. Which, if you haven't got at this point in the story, favoritism is kind of bad parenting, or at least the way that, that Jacob's doing it, along with polygamy and the selling of family members and conspiracies. But let's rewind a little bit back to verse 28, where the brothers remark, what is this that God has done to us? And consider the point that God has mercy on us even in the midst of our ignorance. See, the brothers have no idea that little Joseph is actually the one who is loving on them. The only logical conclusion they can come to is that they are either receiving penalty from God for their sins, or they're being framed by this governor. Yet the very acts of love and generosity and kindness from Joseph is perceived as bad fortune because these brothers don't have a category for God's providential mercies. What about you? Consider for a moment God's mercy to you in your life's circumstances. When situations fare poorly for you, do you conclude that they are something that God just needs to fix? Or do you take comfort and are thankful knowing that God has ordained it for your good? Let me try to demonstrate this process in action a little bit. How many small details go into a mercy that God can give to us. I want you all to think about, most of you here are married. I want you to think how you met your spouse. What terrible breakups occurred before you met your spouse? What terrible things did you have to experience? Perhaps you even muttered the very words that these brothers did. God, what is this that you have done to me? But eventually, that all led you to find your spouse. How have those events shaped your meeting them? Your experiences changed the outcome of the relationship. Yet in all of it, is it possible that God could have used situations, people, events, even sin, to give you countless mercies that you are ignorant to that have put you in your life where you are right now? Allow me to go a step deeper. And as I mention each and every one of these, these have all happened to me. Could God's mercy and grace be found in even the darkest moments of our life? Job loss, sickness, divorce, financial struggles, or even death. Is the God you know big enough and sovereign enough that he is over the most terrible tragedies in your life and that he is actually dispersing to you mercies? In even the midst of great sin, calamity, and suffering, do you believe that God is working good? God has and will be merciful to you despite maybe your experience of immediate loss. Jacob's response demonstrates how most of us tend to wrestle with this kind of thinking and trial and suffering. He says in verse 36, all of these things have come against me. Is that not how we feel sometimes? That life, that everything, that even God is against you? I believe for those of us who know the ending of Genesis 50, for those of us who know that God has, what God has done in Christ, all of this and more is not happening against you. It is happening despite you. God is keeping promises. Nothing is thwarting God's redemptive plan in your life. God is providing for his people in this famine. God is saving a nation despite and even because of favoritism, sinful sons, and every tiny detail that has led up to this moment and the countless moments that all of us experience. God at times may feel like he is coming against you, but that is not how a child feels, or that is how a child feels when their parent rightfully disciplines or takes away or directs a child in the way that they must go. Consider for a moment what set all of this into motion. God uses a famine to bring about his purposes. A famine. Famines are not good. They are calamity. What good could possibly come from a famine? And certainly, we do not want to assign God the blame for such a thing. But the Bible has no problem speaking in these terms as we look at Psalm 105. The psalm illuminates that it is not just mere circumstance that God foresaw that was going to happen. He didn't foresee a a famine coming in the distant future and then took measures to fix it. It was God himself, the Bible says, who summoned the famine. Verse 16, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he, God, had sent a man ahead of them. God had sent Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and the ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. All of this is being orchestrated by God. In Genesis alone, the book of Genesis alone, God sends famine into the life of every patriarch to accomplish his predetermined plans. Famine with Abraham in Genesis 12. Famine with Isaac in Genesis 26. Famine now with Jacob in Genesis 42. These are not just things that God uses in the life of his people, as if God has to kind of work around these events in order to disperse his grace and mercy. They are the very means by which God uses to exalt himself as sovereign ruler to bring about his appointed merciful plans. So I am convinced that even when suffering, trials, calamity, famines, or whatever else that we assign as just pure evil, bad omens, bad fortunes, we are in fact acting perhaps in much ignorance. For God in his infinite providence and his wisdom has appointed them to disperse mercies in grace. If you don't believe me, if this is a hard thing to wrap your mind around, I want to conclude with this proof. Look at Acts 3, verses 14 through 15, 17 through 19. Acts 3, 14 through 15, 17 through 19. Peter, in these verses, is addressing the masses of his Jewish brethren, the Israelites. Listen to what he said to them concerning Jesus. You disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that this Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God So that your sins may be wiped out. This is all said right after Peter said in Acts chapter 2 This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The most wicked the most cruel, the most inhumane, unimaginable, sinful act in all of human history was in fact according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. In ignorance, in sin, these men crucified Christ. They bear that sin. They are solely responsible for that sin. And yet the death of Christ could not be just left to chance. God's mercy to all mankind is hidden inside one of the most sinful acts in all of human history. God's son, his death on a cross for your sins. The brothers and their lies, their guilt, their fearful reaction, Jacob's favoritism, Joseph's snobbery, the dreams, Potiphar's wife, the cupbearer, in the ignorance of all the sins that took place, God's glory and master plan of redemption was taking shape exactly as God had intended. The most startling thing for me is that this story is not just about the redemption and the personal salvation Joseph experiences with God. It has been that all along, but it's been more than that. This is a story about how God saves Joseph's brothers, his father, the future nation of Israel. Now, I don't want to expose every good detail because Rob's still got like six or seven sermons to go, but there is tremendous grace and mercy taking place in this moment, and it is all by the providential hand of God. So praise God For his compassion and his mercy in our lives when we are ignorant of them. In closing, I want us to remember God's mercy in our lives. Whether that be the lies we tell God to others or even to ourselves about who we really are. Tim Keller is quoted most often for saying this. But he says, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine but you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. God has mercy on us despite, despite our undermining and lacking appreciation for it. Secondly, God has mercy on us in our guilt. God may discipline, He may chastise us and use situations to awake our need to confession, but He does not leave us there. He wants to bring us to repentance. We need not suppress or bear the weight of our sin. God has made for us an intercessor, His Son, Jesus Christ, who will cleanse us from all of our guilt. That kindness, that mercy, that we know is true from the Bible should motivate and allow us to confess freely so that we can enjoy abundantly the forgiving work of Christ. And lastly, though we may mistake God at times as distant, as impersonal, and that these bad events in our life are just maybe out of God's control. He's doing his best. God is merciful to us even in that ignorance. For there are a thousand providential mercies at work each day in all of our lives that we fail to notice or to give thanks for, but God still disperses them to you. But inasmuch as we are made aware of them, perhaps you are experiencing that suffering and trial right now. Or if you haven't, then I tell you that you will, and you will face heavy and difficult seasons in life. Could possibly the story of Joseph, can the good news of Christ's foreordained death on a cross, perhaps give rise to trust and faith that God is working all things according to his faithful plan to us. When I read and pray from verses like Lamentations 3:22 through 23, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That is not just a platitude. That is not just some kind of intangible. It is the truth of God's word that God in Christ gives us hundreds upon thousands of mercies every day, that are so incalculable, yet are so real. Let us give thanks to God for his steadfast love, his presence despite our sin, and for the mercy he has shown us in our lives through the loving sacrifice of his son. May God be praised for his sovereign mercies to us. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, um, I feel like I have emptied myself. This sermon has struck me in my heart, in my thinking, as I mully through all the ways in my life where I am right now. The fact that I'm standing at New Hope was brought by a thousand different trials, a thousand different things that we suffered through as a family, yet you have done this all as a kindness and you have blessed me and I hope that this congregation is blessed in the hearing of your word through me today. Lord, I ask that you would be exalted, that your son would be magnified in the lives of my brothers and sisters here. And I pray that the love of God would never cease to transform and motivate and change us. We are so thankful for Jesus. Thank you for your sovereign mercy. And give us more ways to be more thankful to you. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.